0: Welcome TTV community. I am Bob Demena and here with me as always is the very warm hearted Elliot Shibley. Oh, I thank you, Bob.
1: So as always, I'm going to get into a little bit of who we're partnering with and some of our affiliates and swag. So as we've mentioned before, Minivan of Memories is a really cool blogging platform for travelers who want to share their stories, but don't really have their own platform to share it on. Also, little passports, I haven't done it yet, but I'm really excited for either myself or for when I have kids. It's a monthly subscription for kids who you believe want to have a love of the world because who doesn't? And each month, a new package is sent containing new activities, projects, souvenirs from different locations across the globe. It's pretty awesome. Travel by Locals. It's basically Airbnb for travel guides in most cities across the world, as far as I know. I think they have certain locations that they're in now, but they're constantly growing. And they pretty much provide a website so you can reach out to real locals who spend their free time hosting local tours for you. And then we do have a free Audible trial through our website. It's 30 days. You get a free book when you're done. It's pretty awesome. And if you don't like it, you don't pay anything. And that all of that information is on our website through our affiliates page, our partners page, and our swag page.
0: So our next guest is an incredibly interesting human being uh he has 24 year 24 years of guiding experience to over five different continents he is known as an international travel specialist and private guide he escorts high net high net worth individuals and their families on adventure holidays focusing on wildlife and ancient cultures so we had an incredible conversation with him today we got into wildlife encounters um how he plans these trips and how he got into uh being a a private guide so we really enjoyed the the conversation we know you will too without further introduction please please give it up for garth hovel
1: welcome to the traveler's blueprint start designing your next adventure Garth, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Bob and I are extremely excited to talk to you today about your life career that you've made giving private tours across the world.
2: Thank you very much. And thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to uh, be here with you The Traveler's Blueprint. We're very
1: very pleased to have you. So a little history about you. You are an international travel specialist. You've been doing this for... Over 24 years, and I've worked on five different continents, Um, you give these private tours to people, either wildlife tours or ancient culture tours, and the biggest thing is that you make sure that the people have a wonderful travel experience, maybe they get a little bit cultured, and they are able to make it home, and they're safe. Uh, So why don't we just jump right into it and talk about what kind of career you've made for yourself?
2: Okay, so um, as you said, I'm a, I'm a travel specialist or private guide, as some call me, um, and yes, I've been doing it for 26 years. I never wanted to do anything else, um, and so I do private travel for high, ultra-high-net-worth individuals and their families, and I focus on wildlife, as you said, and pre-colonial uh, cultures. Uh, and my aim is is always to educate people, um, keep them safe, obviously. Stay ahead of the travel trend is key uh, for most of my guests, um, and a, a number of other things. Uh, I was going to say, we, we talk about the four pillars of guiding, um, and so the first one is guest safety. The second one is guest sensitivity, so that's split into two parts. One is making sure that uh, we are sensitive to the environment and the cultures that we get involved with. And the other one is that uh, I'm sensitive to my guests' needs as well, their needs and wants. And then the next two things are the um, guest enjoyment and guest education. My guests like to come away feeling like they have really um, dug deep and gotten the, the, the real information, not just a little sliver off the top. Uh, so I <clears throat> I never wanted to <clears throat> do anything else. Um, when I was young in a co- country called Rhodesia, I uh, got sent to a boarding school away from the border where there was a lot of tension and hostility. And, and the boarding school was inside a national park. Uh, and that really set me up for this path. Uh, I got to spend time around some, some incredible uh, people who knew so much about wildlife. And uh they just inspired me. And since then I've I've always said this is what I want to do. Uh and I've been very fortunate to to follow it. You know, people say if your work is your passion, you'll never work a day in your life. So I guess I haven't worked a day in my life. That's awesome. Wait, can you can you remind me where Rhodesia is? Is Rhodesia it's still a country? It's now called Zimbabwe. Okay. Okay. So Rhodesia is now Zimbabwe. It changed in nineteen eighty. All right. Okay.
0: Yeah. So I mean, one of the things that I think grasped our attention about you is the the locations of these places that you're taking these people. Um, a lot of them are really hard to reach areas. And I liked your your wording of finding places before the travel trend takes hold. Very much so. That's, yeah. Yeah. I might have to start sending you emails. Hey, Garth, where should I go uh, <laughs> next year? Um, so can we get into some of those remote destinations? I think you have a whole laundry list of different places you've been. So, yeah, I'm just curious. Let's get started.
2: Absolutely. Uh, okay, so, for example, uh, when the Condé Nast uh, five top places came out for 2019, uh, on New Year's Day, uh, we'd already, the guests that I was with, we'd already been to three of the, the five places that were suggested for 2019. Actually, we were sitting in the Danakil Depression in in Ethiopia when the list came out and sort of we we had a good laugh. Um, But yes, it's always been incredibly important to not just go to places that are um, ahead of the travel trend, but I have to be able to achieve that in a luxurious, safe manner.
0: Well, and what are some of those challenges?
2: Well, uh, distance from major centers, um, availability of equipment within uh, those countries. So sometimes you have to import things um and then guest specific requirements i have uh one guest who really really likes diet dr pepper uh and if not that then coke light and so i've taken diet dr pepper and coke light to pretty incredible places in the world so and, uh, so
1: diet dr pepper is probably traveling more than me <laughs> quite, <laughs> quite possibly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah so I I I want to get into your clientele a little bit later in the episode because I'm really curious about that uh the types of people that you're taking to these remote regions um but I, so I guess first, I just I'm more curious about some of these regions and what you actually do on these tours. So when you're taking these people to Ethiopia or other countries in Africa
2: or Asia, you're you're making a point to see wildlife. And right? we 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 try and mix it. We try and mix it up. It, you know, it's not all wildlife. It's not all cultural. It's trains, planes, automobiles. Uh, we use various different modes of transport. We'll stay in safari camps, luxury hotels. Uh, we might private charter, uh, which we did a, a really nice yacht on the Amazon River. Um, so it really just, it, it's all mixed and and it's all about digging deeper into a country. I'll also try and uh, organize uh, specialists in any particular field, be it anthropology or or anything like that, to come and talk to my guests and educate them further.
0: And how long do these tours, these guides typically last?
2: Uh, so normally eight to 21 days is, is the norm.
0: Okay. And what have been some of your favorite experiences so far?
2: Um, I love Ethiopia. I love Bolivia. I love Patagonia. Uh, yeah. Uh, Borneo. I'm crazy about, um, there's so, so many places.
0: So when you're going to Ethiopia or you're going to Bolivia, or Patagonia, Patagonia specifically, let's, let's talk about Patagonia. You know, you're showing up with these high net worth individuals into a very poor country. And then do you have a predetermined itinerary? Maybe they want to do more of the outdoorsy things, start hiking around, Uh, I guess. I mean, what else would you do in Patagonia? Um,
2: Um, Absolutely. So, so it's, um, it, it is a, it is a, it is a uh, pre-organized itinerary, but my guests know that if things are not working, uh, we can change things up um, and um, <clears throat> it it doesn't happen very often or sometimes I, I just need to be loose enough uh, to be able to adapt to whatever is happening on the ground. Um, and for many of my guests, I think the key is we don't rest a lot. So we hit the ground and we are running and it's hiking and it's mountain biking or uh, going to view glaciers, or, you know, any any number of things like that. All right. Uh,
1: can, we, can we go into a little bit of how you became a private tour guide? Because in your profile and your website, you were the youngest person to have ever achieved. Like, I forget what the exact guide
2: status was. but yeah, you I was thinking... the youngest person to uh, become a fully qualified walking guide in Zimbabwe. Okay. Um, and that, that record stood for a, a little while. Um and that's that so Zimbabwe has the the highest standard of guides license wildlife guides license anywhere in the world. Um so that was quite an achievement and I worked as a walking guide for for a number of years after that I moved to Zambia. But then what happened was Zambia had a very short season uh only about 8 months and I couldn't really afford to look after myself for the other 4 months. You don't make much guide uh, money as a, a safari guide. So what I started doing was in my off season, I would travel to other countries and work there. And India actually works really well. So I would work Zambia and then India, Zambia and then India. And uh, then when I got back to Africa, people would say to me, hey, we want to see lions and tigers and bears, just kind of joke, And I'd say, okay, lions I can do, uh, but tigers, you need to go to India. And then I would start talking about uh, tiger habitat or or uh, uh, habits or breeding habits and guests would say, well, you know a lot about tigers. I said, yeah, I live in, lived in India for two years or two seasons. So that's okay, great. Can you take us there? Because we've always wanted to go. So I said, okay, fine. So I started taking people to India or Malaysia, other countries that I'd lived and worked in. And then my guests just kind of started to break rank. And they just said, you know, we want to go to Bolivia. And I said, but I haven't been to Bolivia. They said, doesn't matter. That- we want you to take us to Bolivia. So I then had to start, you know, working out how to do reconnaissance trips and uh, uh, learn, study uh, more and more about countries that I hadn't and and adapt the skills that I have to countries that I hadn't been to before.
1: Does does it translate well when you have to learn how to guide Um. and learn about the country?
2: Yeah, it does. Um, I I wouldn't say I have a fixed formula, but, um, you know, there's there's antelopes all over the world. So once you know antelope behavior, you can talk about that generally, and then you learn specifics about each species. Um, So when you're sitting watching an animal, you can see, okay, you have males over here, which is your bachelor herd. You have females and young over here with a dominant male. Okay, that's a breeding herd. Uh, some animals have a matriarchal society, so you pick up these trends within each species or family of animal, and that's really what I'm I'm bringing across and, and showing people.
1: Okay, so it seems like being a guide is really about adaptability
2: and understanding how to learn about a place. Yes, and yes, and no. So yes, that is a very important skill, and a lot of people think that being a guide means you have to be great with animals. Actually, being a good guide, you have to be good with people. You have to be able to read people. Um, you know, I've seen people who are incredible birders but are not great with people. And they're constantly driving going, oh, my God, there's a red vented fluff foot. And people are going, I don't like birds. And they just keep trying to force them into birds. So being a good guide is knowing as much about people and being able to articulate with your guests and being able to read your guests when they're having fun, when they're not having fun, and then being able to adapt your information to to the readings that you're getting from your guests. Um, and that might not always be your strong field or something that you particularly want to talk about.
0: So when it comes to reading your guests, um, another part... I would assume is maybe their physical capabilities. Some of these locations are so remote that uh, I was wondering, you know, do you do you have any prerequisite? No, I have
2: to I have to bring the mountain to Muhammad. So I have to get rid of whatever is in the way. My guest is my guest and they are the most important thing. So if they say they want to go somewhere, then I have to change the what is available at the destination. If I have to bring in helicopters, if I have to bring in porters, if I have to, um, uh, have steps built, uh, on a hotel or, or whatever the story is, then I, I change that. I don't, I don't ask for my guests to do anything. I change the environment on behalf of my guests. Um, so like where I took the youngest girl ever to climb to Abune Yamata church in Ethiopia. And uh, the toe and handholds were so far, but she was just, she's a, she's a little machine. I've traveled with her so many times. Um, so I brought in uh, guys that are trained alpine search and rescue uh, mountaineers, and they put them in harnesses and ropes and everything and, and helped us. She didn't actually need it, but just the added security gave her that confidence to climb. Knowing that if she did fall, she was connected. Um, so yeah, if, if that's something that I have to do, then that's something that I'll do. I'll, I'll bring in the specialists.: I'm also quite lucky because I generally have a bigger budget than most people to, to work with. <laughs> right. Yeah, I could see that helping. Um,
0: and so some of the, the areas that I noticed that you went to that I'm really curious to hear a bit more about, um, I guess first, gorillas in the Congo. Are you taking people into the, into the Congo?
2: Yes, very definitely. There's a group there, CCC at Zala, um, that are doing some amazing work. And it actually started through philanthropy. So quite a few of my guests um, like to get involved in philanthropy while we travel. And um, obviously, the Congo and Central African Republic are, are in need of some, some help. Um, and so a number of my guests have been saying to me, um, you know, I, I believe the, the Congo, and bear in mind, this is the Republic of Congo, it's not the Democratic Republic of Congo. So there are two very, very different countries. Uh, both of them have gorillas, but but one is very uh, very stable and the other one is not. Um, but these are the western lowland gorillas. Um, there are around 300,000 of them uh, in the Congo Basin, uh, so not the mountain gorillas, which most, most people um, are used to. Um, and um it it was the most it is the most incredible place. It's a very very different experience. Um the the jungle and the forest there is just phenomenal. Um so you have all the bird life, the whole the way the whole environment comes together uh to work is just it's it's an incredible place and I'm looking forward to taking more people there.
0: Is it a matter of trekking there though? Do you have to actually are you leading people through the Congo, the African jungle to the location of these gorillas? And then yeah, observing so them? what you
2: do is you fly into a national park and then there you are met. Um, I use, a, a, um, again, a specific group that are very professional. They have incredible trackers. Um, and one thing that I love about the Congo experience versus, say, Uganda and Rwanda, when you climb in R- Uganda and Rwanda, There is anywhere up to eight people in a group. There is one porter for each of those eight people. There are four trackers finding the gorillas. There's then one national park scout. So by the time you get walking, there's 20 plus people walking through the forest. Um, although when you do get close to the, the gorillas, the porters and everyone stays behind and you just have the national park scout and and uh, maybe one or two of the trackers just to help clear the bush. When you're doing this in the Congo, there's only four people allowed in a group and there's only one tracker guide. So as a group of five, you can really get into these small places, move quietly. So the, the reaction that you get from the gorillas is very genuine they don't really pay much attention to you. And so it's a very authentic experience. I'm not saying that the Ugandan Rwandan isn't authentic. Um, Just in my experience of having gorilla track in in numerous places all over Africa, I thoroughly enjoy the Congolese version of it.
1: Well, you touched on something I wanted to get into, and that is the size of the groups that you guide. Um, I assume most of them are fairly intimate. You're not guiding like, 20 people at a time.
2: No, 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 no. So I I only guide uh individuals, families, single interest groups. So I have one guest um and and if that's a grandfather and he's bringing his kids and grandchildren or or it's a father traveling, mother and father traveling with their kids. I don't do mixed groups or anything like that. Um I just recently got back from the Okavango Delta where I was traveling with a couple. Um, and, and had a wonderful experience from them, a couple out of Seattle. Um, so, so it is private. It's not, it's not mixed groups or anything like that. Okay. And I'm sure that makes the experience all the better. Definitely. For both. Um, yeah, but you know, you also don't have to deal with the trouble of mixed groups and, uh, but they got to sit there yesterday and I want to sit there. today. I just have one person and that one person sorts it all out. Yes, <laughs> and are these and people? What to do. <laughs> are these people typically
0: experienced travelers already that are just looking to add to that resume, or some of are them they... are
2: and some of them aren't? Okay, um, some of them are, are experienced, but maybe they are exper- You know, they've been to Italy, France, Canada, um, maybe Argentina, Buenos Aires, kind of the the, the nice places, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and now they they want to push themselves. They have family. They need someone they can trust um, to take into to these more difficult places that knows the area, that knows how to travel in those places, um, and is pushing them and their families or their children to to another level.
0: Right, because I mean, for someone to go into the Congo to visit gorillas, uh, I'm assuming you can't do that without a guide. Is that correct? Can you do that on your own? Um,
2: well, the 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 um. The, you can pick up a guide at the gate, but you're not okay. always guaranteed. So it, it depends on your budget, really. And okay. that comes down to budget. Yes, you can do it, uh, in the Congo, especially if you speak French, it's a lot easier to, to do. Um, but if you don't, then doing that without a, a private guide, it's just, it's just a little more tricky. Okay. Um, the, uh, where I went, Oxala, um, they had Incredible guides. Incredible guides. English speaking guides. So that made things a lot easier.
0: Okay. Yeah. And and you've also taken people to Petra Jordan, which is yes. somewhere that I've mentioned a bunch of times on my podcast on this podcast that uh that it's somewhere that I want to go that Elliot and I actually discussed possibly going to at some point in the near future. Um now this seems to be more of a uh tourist destination, right? There's mm-hmm. They get a decent amount of tourists there. What type of guides would you give
2: people there? Are you walking them throughout the ancient city of Petra? Yeah, absolutely. So, so as with all of my travel, they are going to have a preconceived idea of what a place is about. You know, they watched Indiana Jones, so they know that there's this big building there. They may not know that it's called the Treasury, um, and so they think, okay, well, that's that's what we're going to go and see, right? And so you take them to the treasury and you've ticked that box. Now you open up the world that is Petra. Um, and there's a whole valley and there's walkways that go up onto the top that give you very special views that most tourists don't. Um, and this is not only as a, as a private guide. They're, one of the things that is going to blow you away as a traveler when you go to, to Petra is that the local people – the police, everyone, they're just so kind and so helpful. You know, in some places, when people are trying to sell you something or say, Hey, if you give me $5, I'll take you to this unique viewpoint. You tend to kind of treat it a bit with a bit of skepticism and just straight off say no. If you say no once to a person in Petra, they leave you alone, which is just weird, right? You know, yeah, <laughs> normally yeah. people are like, You sure? I'll give it to you for $2. Are you sure? How about one day? If you say no once in Petra, they go, okay, and they walk away. And you almost feel like saying, well, hang on, dude, you didn't even try. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, Petra is a, a very special place, and there's a lot of lead-on places outside of Petra. Little Petra itself is also gorgeous. Um, we, uh, we had a private dinner um, one night at, at Little Petra and did a, a full light display, um, which was incredibly interesting. Um, so the, the other thing is that one of the great things is that Jordan is what I like to call a yes country. There's a lot of countries around the world where you go and you say, well, could we do this? And their first answer is no, no, you can't do that. Uh, you know, places like Chile, Chile is a yes place. Uh, Jordan is a yes place. Um, so when you go and you say, well, Hey, can we, uh, rent out Petro to do a dinner tonight? Yes, you can you know, they are open to trying so many different things. So as, as, you know, so long as it doesn't do any damage to any of the sites and you, they are so strict. Um, they are open to using your imagination, what you can do with it. Uh,
0: So what do we know about that? The actual civilization that occupied Petra? And by we, I mean, what do you know?
2: (laughs) Uh, I know when they started, I know when they arrived, I know how long they lasted. Um, you know, my, my job, uh, is not, um, uh, always to know everything. I always have local guides with me as well. Uh, so my job is, is as much about the, the broader knowledge of the entire region. When it comes to very specific knowledge, like that of the Nabataeans, um, and how they grew, how they came about, um, primarily as, uh, traders uh quite specifically as frankincense traders uh bringing France, frankincense out of Yemen uh through the wealthy ports in what's now Syria to Europe um so all of a sudden a bunch of uh, bedouin very calm easy travelers um because of their knowledge of the desert it made them literally kings it made them so wealthy that they were able to to build a place like Petra um, but uh, I don't know if your your podcast is long enough for me to talk on everything <laughs> that I know about Nabataeans. You tell me when you want me to stop. Uh, they uh, were taken over by the Romans. Um, and actually, they saw the end of Rome and the new Roman Empire as well. Um, they fought the Romans successfully and defeated them because of their, their knowledge of uh, the desert. Um, but finally ended up being a, annexed by them purely because the entire region around them had been taken over, not necessarily because they lost to them.
0: Yeah. It's a fascinating site. Then I I've been, um, I have a fascination for archeological sites around the world. So that's one that I really want to see that I think I might pair up with, uh, Egypt and maybe Israel
2: one day. Um, well, I did, I did it with, um, Egypt, um, in March of this year, which I've normally done Jordan and Petra by itself um, or Egypt by itself. And it was really nice to to pair the two together because they do have a fair amount of shared history uh, where one comes into the other. Um, so well worth doing if you have the time because you want to at least be able to give them, you know, some real, some, some, you know, be able to get into depth. You don't just want to scrape over the top of it. Right, right.
0: Well, I mean, so knowing knowing the types of tours that you do, can we get into some of the, uh, I don't want to call them mishaps, but sticky situations that you've encountered while uh, being in the Congo or being in some of these, these far these the reach countries?
2: I, you know, people always want to ask me about sticky situations. First of all, I try and prepare enough that, um, sticky situations don't happen. And if sticky situations do happen more often than not, my, my guests don't know that they happened. And then there is the other side as well, that people, uh, don't always know how to read, for example, animals. So they don't always know when they nearly died. And sometimes they think they nearly died when actually there was no danger whatsoever. So, for example, you love elephants, and most people who see elephants with their ears out, they go, oh my God, it's going to attack, it's going to attack. Well, that's how elephants cool themselves. So, people are like, oh my God, we nearly died, and there was this big elephant, and he was standing there with his ears out. It's like, wow. They just do that to make themselves look bigger and or to cool themselves down. Actually, if a, an elephant is being very aggressive, it puts its ears back and it runs straight at you. Um, And then people will just think, oh, it's just an elephant running over there. So... Uh, sticky situations is really about a perception of, of sticky situations.
1: On your website, you had a story about um, saving a guest in a remote desert and I, something involving like the only car in the desert, and somehow that
2: guest almost got hit by it. <laughs> <laughs> so he was on the satellite phone in the middle of the Nama Desert, right up near the um, Angolan border. And it was only one road, and like in the middle of the desert. And he was sort of walking and talking, and he, and he was talking about, you know, to his accountants and, and things. And there was a, I could see the dust from this car coming from a mile away. And I kind of looked at him. I thought, you know, he's standing on a road. But he just thought, I'm in the middle of the desert. No cars actually go on this road. And so he just started walking, and I, I was running towards him, and I was shouting and waving my arms, but he was looking at the ground. And he was talking on his satellite phone and everything. And I was and he looked up at me, and I was like, move back, move back. And, like, literally as he stepped back, this car came you know, around the corner. You don't get corners in the, in the desert, but kind of came from behind a few acacia trees and, and went flying past, and just this ashen, look on his face of like, how did I nearly get hit by the only car in, <laughs> in the entire desert? Uh, we, we laughed about it afterwards, but when it was happening, I, I was a little worried. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine.
0: And, and so you said these are high net worth individuals. Are they famous people? Do you, do you have you catered some, to celebrities? Some of them are
2: famous. Some of them are famous people. Some of them are maybe famous more in, in business circles or things like that. Um, I really have a cross section of of people. Um, can you drop so any celebrity from...
0: names? or Are they all nope? Keeping them private. Nope.
2: The, the I I do all of my guest photography for them. I do. I, I become a part of their their family. And the, what does that? And the, again, when you guys are talking about, oh, can I do what what God does? Uh, I want to become a guide. Key to that is trust if you are going to blab your mouth off about your guests and their names or anything like that, you will never get anywhere in this industry. Um, So, so key is that they have to know that they can trust you with their children, but then also just trust you that you're not going to open your mouth about
0: um,
2: who they are, what they do and that sort of thing.
0: Well, that's, that's kind of a good segue. Something that I'm curious about, you know, I know you, you went down your own path to stardom, you know, being born in Africa and, ended up going to school within, you know, a national park within Africa with tons of wildlife around it. But if you could recommend maybe a path for someone in, you know, the United States or Canada or Australia to get into this, what would you say
2: to that person? So it depends how you want to do it. If you, uh, Are you talking about someone in the United States who wants to go and become a guide in Africa?
0: Um, maybe not necessarily Africa, maybe just a private guide anywhere in the world.
2: Okay, so pick the place you know most about and and encourage people to go there. Then travel to the places you think people you want to go to, places that interest you um, and hopefully other people. Um, travel to them. Do them on an absolute shoestring because once you've done a place on a shoestring, it's very easy to go up from there. It's not always easy to go the other way around. Um, be adaptable. I, it, A lot of it depends on, on who you are as a, as a person. Be a yes person. Say yes. Someone says, Hey, do you want to go down this alleyway? It looks dark, but yeah, let's go down the alleyway and see what's down there. (laughs) Go down the rabbit hole. Um, take opportunities. I could never have gotten to where I am today if I'd not taken some crazy opportunities. Um, and that was literally just by saying yes. Um, and, and I found myself in, the arctic circle in russia or borneo or india wow. all over the place which was your first major trip
0: that uh, i guess you when you realize that wow this is going to be big for me this is something that i'm going to do for the rest of my life
2: um i i always knew that that i was going to be a guide but what changed was 2008 the major financial crash in 2008 i had 210 days booked and all of a sudden Everyone canceled. And, and this is the thing. Everyone thinks it's quite glitzy to be a guide, but you are a luxury and you are the first thing that will be dropped. Um, and I managed to claw back some days and, and make the year work. But the key was the realization that I needed to be looking after a, a very small percentage of travelers, the people who weren't necessarily hurt by, um, financial crashes. But the only reason why I was able to do that is because of the number of years of experience that I have. It's very difficult to do it when you don't have experience. And it's it's horrible because it's a chicken and egg situation. You can't get experience because no one will give you opportunity. And you can't get opportunities because you don't have any experience. And so you're stuck in this horrible place and you've just got to breathe and just keep going and know that it will come. Um People just don't trust you if you don't have experience. Right.
0: Yeah, it seems like something that you have to do for your own passion and you know, hope that maybe it'll turn into something in the future rather than going in with the mindset that I'm going to turn this into a very lucrative career immediately.
2: Yeah, I I wouldn't do that at all. Um, The travel industry itself is quite funny. Um, So for example, even if you start a safari camp, agents will generally not touch you for three years they want to see you stand up and run before they give you an opportunity and again it's this horrible chicken and egg situation because you can't stand up and run unless you get guests because you need that income so absolutely don't have a realization of making a lot of money quickly you've got to be able to do it slowly i think that's i think that's fairly important in a lot of careers uh, you know absolutely, and, and I think people get frustrated by it, and they say, "Well, I see this guy's flying in private jets, and he's in private yachts, and he's this and that." Oh, hang on! Facebook wasn't around when I was sleeping on street corners and in tents and up a tree with my belt to stop me from falling out, and you know, so I had to do that hard time as well, uh, dangerous situations or whatever. You've got to, you've got to do your time, and don't, like I said, just. Uh, don't get frustrated by it and realize that what you're doing is not for nothing. Experiences, everything, even bad experiences are, will help you in 10, 20 years time. Yeah. Still learning. So for people that are
1: looking to book a private tour with you, what is the best way to kind
2: of get in touch with you through your website? Through my website, which is privateguideworldwide.com. Um, is is easiest um, I can then suggest a, a booking agent or, or take care of your booking uh, for you um, a lot of the guests that use me have their own travel agencies that they use um, and I can be booked in conjunction with that travel agency that is is not a problem um, I'm generally always available except for when I'm not when I'm uh, up a mountain or in a rainforest or in a desert or Uh, But I I have a lovely lady that that, uh, runs my office, and she'll keep me up to speed. And I look forward to taking people.
0: And so in two weeks, you are going to Kilimanjaro.
2: Yes, two weeks' time. I will be climbing Kilimanjaro with three fantastic gentlemen, two brothers and the one guy's son. Um, And it's going to be awesome. We're all super psyched about it. Uh, They're from Arizona and New York, respectively. Um, and, and we're, we're excited. We've all trained hard. Uh, we all know how hard it is. three hundred and fifty feet is, is no joke. You can die. Um, but you know, I think, uh, I've prepared them well enough. They've prepared themselves well enough. So now it's the exciting part.
0: How many days are you giving, uh, this trip? I, I've read somewhere that for Kilimanjaro, you can do it in as little as five, at least 10 is recommended.
2: Yeah, so we, we're doing the the eight-day version, so six days up and two days down. Um, giving Because the guests are from uh, more sea level, it'll give us that a little bit more time to acclimatize. So if you uh, take extra time, your chances of making it are 90% and above. If you try and do the five-day version, three days up and two days down, you uh, drop your chances to less than 60%.
0: Okay. And as you're hiking, is there any
2: uh, wildlife you're going to expect to see? Or is it just a nice um, Right at the beginning, that? you start uh, through rainforest. Um, Kilimanjaro generates its own weather. And um, so it has its own rainforest, and there's great monkeys and things like that. Then you go into bird areas. And then once you get up near the top, you lose all vegetation, so you lose the birds, you lose the animals, the insects, and then you're really talking about geo- geology, geography. We <laughs> oh, should go one day. I know, I know. Oh, well, totally, you guys would love it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I spent a uh, summer in Tanzania, and we <laughs> a few of us contemplated going up to see Kilimanjaro, and we had uh, visions of grandeur of actually hiking it, or some of it, over the course of three days. Little did we know.
2: Yeah, I think one of the key factors that hurts a lot of people is people think, oh, it's Africa. It's nice and warm. They don't realize that the top of Mount Kilimanjaro is minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Your last camp is uh, probably around minus 8 or minus 10 thereabouts. Um, So it's, it's cold. It's properly cold.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the misconceptions about Kilimanjaro in general. It's a walk-up mountain. And so yeah. a lot of people think that you're just going to have this nice, leisurely, cleared path to the top, and then you're going to come back down and, and, and you're going to you know go about your day. But 19,000 feet is nothing to joke about. Is there, I don't even think McKinley in
2: the United States is, no. I think it says it's 17,000 feet. Exactly, exactly. And you know, when you talk about temperature, take somewhere... Um, like, and if you want to draw a really nice assimilation, take uh, Maui, and, um, you know, everyone's down on the beach, and it's beautiful, 70, 80 degrees, but if you go to the top of Haleakala Crater, that's only 10,000 feet, and the next thing you know, you're shivering, and, you know, there's little icicles all over the place, and you think, well, hang on, just 10 minutes ago, I was down at the beach, and it was gorgeous, now take that, that's 10,000 feet, and I'll go up to 19,000 feet. Wow, and there's there's nothing to stop the wind up there. So, and when the wind picks up, that minus twenty will become minus thirty pretty quickly. Wow, what's the highest mountain you've climbed? It's Kilimanjaro. I, I, I thought about doing Aconcagua last year, which is the highest mountain in South America, which is twenty two. But I have a young family, and I like my job. I like my life. <laughs> I was going to ask, is if Everest
0: fair. was in your sights or anything no, like that? No, but, it's not. No. I don't I don't
2: need to do that. I don't need to go yeah. to a place where my body is breaking down.
0: I, I'm I in agreement and, with that. I don't really yeah. have any interest in going to Everest anytime soon. Yeah. No. Or,
1: or ever, for that matter. Ever, nope. yeah. Everest. <laughs> All right. Well, Garth, it was a pleasure talking to you today. We had a lot of really cool stories and learned a lot about what a private guide does and how
2: to become one and what the requirements and prereqs are. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me, guys. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, if anyone ever has any questions, they are so welcome to get in touch with me. Um, uh, uh, Information is free. Thanks, Garth. You're most welcome, guys. Thank you.
0: So I have a feeling that
2: I can't afford his tours.
0: Um, so I guess <laughs> you and I will just have to go into the Congo alone to experience jungles in the wild. Um, do you know how to navigate a jungle? Because I don't. I just use the stars
1: to navigate.
0: Oh, yeah. You know what? I've heard of that method. I heard it works pretty right. well. Yeah. But in the, okay. in the daytime, I use the sun. Okay. Yeah. There's and how do, you, how do you plan on seeing the stars in the dense canopy of the, the Congo? You have to climb the trees. Mm. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing in the trees, so you you should be safe. No, nothing. Yeah, nothing. yeah. All right. Well, I think we have it down. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's <laughs> that's pretty much all the logistics you need, right? Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, but how how awesome was that conversation? It was what really a cool, cool person. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know that was a job opportunity.
0: No, but I can see it. I didn't either, but I can see it doing really well. I mean, you know, if you are the individual who has the money to. Uh, pay for someone to bring you to these locations who's so experienced, who's knowledgeable about the history, I. that sounds like an incredible time. It sounds like the perfect way to really experience these places without any other strangers. You know, yeah. you're with your family, right. you're going into these remote locations uh, safely.
1: Yeah, yeah. It sounds, yeah, it sounds awesome. Incredibly, incredibly knowledgeable and like intimate. Because it's, mm-hmm. it's usually only like six people. And Garth has one of the best risk mitigation strategies out of any person I know because he is so familiar with the dangers of each place he goes to and he researches every place beforehand. Right. Yeah. He has
0: a team of people. He seems to know locals at a lot of these locations. So yeah. yeah hopefully um, hopefully one day we can afford him. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um awesome conversation though. So you're your turn to talk, Elliot. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: So give us a rating on CastBox, on Apple Podcasts, on all of those other ones, Spotify, on Radio Public, if you listen on that. Follow us on social media, Instagram. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and just reach out to us. We do like talking to people. Um, Our website has been updated quite a bit. We've got lots of cool stuff. We've got our merchandise page with affiliates and some of our swag. And we really appreciate you listening to us week in and week out.
0: Yes, we do. Thank you. You are the TTB community, and we
2: appreciate you. (laughs) See you later.